Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. We have been away for quite a bit of time, and in that time, Dad has been preparing a few episodes. Uh, To be honest, this is the first time I've seen Dad since our trip to Auschwitz. So That was a long time ago. That was in May. Yeah. Yeah, so it's now September. So this is probably the longest I've gone in a few years without seeing you so um just been busy you know everything gets on top and luckily we've got a few a few episodes ready to go and uh had a choice of a few today this one i think well this was your choice yeah the the ones that i threw at you yeah yeah um this one is very very interesting it's a story i think everyone in the world no matter where you are knows the aftermath of this story um you know potentially yeah yeah. i would say you've been living under a rock if you don't know but the story itself is one that i don't think many people will know purely on the basis that how many people have ever looked into it i think you know obviously there there are stories about it but how many people have looked into this particular story who are not naval historians or so that gives it away slightly. It does. It's another, uh, it's another naval seafaring one that I'm doing for yes, you. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, most, I mean, again, a lot of your, your history ones do tend to be on yeah, the sea. on the sea. Yeah. yeah. But this one, very, very interesting, and I'm looking forward to it because I know a little bit about it, um, not a huge amount. For those of you who have noticed um, or who have missed the last episode, you will notice my Bonnie and Clyde one has gone up. Um what what page are you on now? How many pages have you done for yours? My, my, my notes are at page 17. Yeah. So, <laughs> a slightly longer podcast. Um, you set me a challenge. I did. I set the challenge, and I, I may be slightly regretting that because of the amount of uh, just seen, just looking at your notes, I'm thinking, yeah, I've missed that out. And uh, Anyway, we'll find out when that... That's not quite ready yeah, yet, that, is it? Yeah, that's, that's later on in the year, but um, I'm, just, but, I'm slowly writing that one. and researching it. Yes. So what part of the ocean, what navy, who are we talking about today? Okay. Uh, we're talking about the USN, the United States Navy. Yep. And we're talking, well, a long way away. Yes, a very long way, especially for us. Especially for yes. us. Yes. So, shall we get going? Yes. Okay. So, luck, good or bad, plays a major part in history. 
Absolutely. Okay, so this podcast gives us both. Um, it can be interpreted either way. What's lucky for one person or a group may not be the same for another. And this particular episode that I'm going to talk about occurred towards the end of the Second World War, and it was kept secret for a considerable amount of time after the war had ended. We're talking about the final mission of the USS Indianapolis. Now, if you've got no knowledge of what occurred, you'll probably guess the outcome by that word, final. Yes. Okay. So what was the uh, Indianapolis? Well, the Indianapolis was a Portland-class heavy cruiser of the United States Navy, and it was launched in 1931. So it wasn't that old for the Second World Wars. Ten, no. ten years when, when the Americans came into it. And she was actually the flagship of Admiral Raymond Ames Spruance. And he commanded the U.S. Fifth Fleet in the Pacific. So we are talking Pacific War now. Yep. The ship took part in numerous sea battles against the Imperial Japanese Navy, including assaults on Saipan, Philippine Sea, Guam, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. So it saw a lot of action. It did, and she was not at Pearl Harbor at the time of the Japanese attack. So she was one of the capital ships that wasn't there. One of the lucky ones. Again, we go back to the start. Yeah, yeah. lucky in that. In that lucky respect, for the yeah. Americans. Lucky for us. Not yeah. so much for the Japanese. So let's move on from Pearl Harbor and all those fantastic battles that the, uh, the United States Navy was involved in during that time. And we'll start our story on the 31st of March, 1945. Um, the USS Indianapolis, or the Indy, as she was affectionately called, was involved at that time in the battle for Okinawa. Um, her task was to defend the aircraft carriers and to assist the land forces by shelling the island. Two weeks into the battle, she'd already seen a fair amount of action, and her anti-aircraft guns had already taken out six kamikaze pilots and aircraft. Wow. Now, it might seem a low number, you know, six, in the age of computer games when you're like one every second or whatever, but six was actually an impressive score. Yeah, it's quite high. Suicide planes were highly dangerous. They sank... 36 American warships damaged 368 other vessels, killed 4,900 men, destroyed 763 American aircraft, and that was at the Battle of Okinawa alone. Yeah. I mean, they were a fearsome unit, and obviously, for the price of one soldier and one aircraft, and you're taking out full warships full of thousands of men uh, they were a tactic used by the japanese and they weren't to be taken lightly they were incredibly difficult to shoot down yes a typical attack on a u.s ship used six japanese aircraft although single plane attacks were known uh, two planes would dive on the stern of the uh, intended target at the same time two would go for the bow which is the front the front and leaving the other two to come in from the sides, one from each side. This had the effect of splitting the guns on the ship and preventing them from concentrating any fire. Yeah. And, I mean, it only took one kamikaze aircraft in the right place to sink a ship. 
and you can get, give you an example the Battle of Leyte Gulf at um, 10 to 11 in the morning 25th of October 1944 single kamikaze aeroplane took out and sank the USS St. Lou just one one aircraft yeah so we're talking about kamikazes but what are they so the best way I can describe it is an immense guided missile in the age of not non-computers mm. um, at a time when rockets didn't exist the Japanese used aircraft packed, packed with explosives they didn't use remote control what they had was a pilot and he was expected to crash his flying bomb into enemy ships. It was a one-way mission. The pilots were given the minimum amount of training, only 40 hours, takeoff and basic flight. A safe and smooth landing was not part of the training. It didn't need to be. Okay. Um, and while their mission was suicidal, they weren't. the commanders in charge of these people weren't completely stupid. The pilots were told to aim for high-value targets, aircraft carriers, later on picket ships. But if they weren't allowed to, if they couldn't find a target, then they were allowed to return. Yeah. You know why waste an otherwise perfectly working aircraft and a semi-trained pilot? They weren't short of volunteers. The Japanese believed it was a privilege to uh, to be selected for the training and an honour to be given a mission. It was a major disgrace for the whole family if a member refused to fly, and in some cases, if they survived, which some did. What, after crashing? Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, surely that's a benefit, isn't it? If you can crash the plane, blow up a ship, and still survive. Yeah, the Japanese didn't think that way. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that would be logical, wouldn't it? It would. Um, on a side note to kamikazes, they also had things called kaitans. And they were used against American ships. They were human-guided torpedoes. Yeah, they, I've seen them. And there's a torpedo with a little cockpit on top of it, and the bloke sat in it and aimed it at the ship. And then just went bang. And went bang, yeah. Anyway... Let's get back to the yeah. Indies, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, just after seven o'clock, in fact, it was six minutes past, and we get a bit precise on that one. <laughs> 31st of March, 1944, uh, a single enemy fighter plane, an Oscar, which was the American code name for that particular type of aircraft. Uh, for those of your listeners out there that are actually interested in it, it's a... Uh, a Nakajima KI-43 Hayabusa. Yeah, that's what the aircraft is. Americans didn't want them to go, it's one of, the, it's one of those, you know, yeah. it's, it's an Oscar. Yeah. Um, it was sighted emerging from low cloud on an almost vertical dive slightly to the right-hand side of the Indy, which is the starboard side. The plane headed for the ship in a suicide dive and was potentially heading for the bridge. It was another kamikaze attack eight of the indies 20 millimeter guns were brought into action but only five of them managed to empty out their magazines before the plane crashed into the port side just behind the main deck 
25 seconds from sighting to impact. Wow. Very, very quick. Yeah. Damage control teams managed to save the ship, but the plane caused so much damage to the main deck plating, she was forced to leave the Battle of Okinawa and head back home. And she headed to California, a place called Mare Island, for emergency repairs. Yep. Um, and there she should have remained until the end of the war, which, to be honest, wasn't that far away. No, it wasn't. Not Well, but they didn't know that at the time, did they? Let's mm. be honest. Uh, unfortunately, by being in California, she was in the right place at the right time for a top-secret mission. Now, I've read somewhere that the original ship that was going to be used was the USS Pensacola. Um, that was the government's first choice. Yep. Uh, she was also at Mare Island for an overhaul, but due to an engineering issue, which the US Navy still haven't clarified, uh, she wasn't ready for sailing. Okay. So the so Indy the was the second Indy best. came out of repair of the repair yard early. She was given the mission. Fair enough. Now, in 1939, so we go back pre-war, Mm-hmm. Albert Einstein issued a warning that Nazi Germany was developing a new kind of bomb one that we would now know used nuclear energy Britain, France, Norway and Canada all took notice of this information and began to conduct their own research the US did not well they weren't involved at that point were they? Well, it wasn't a war in 19- at that point yeah but it was head, it was coming that way. The British scientists had already managed to split the atom seven years earlier, 1932. And in 1939, they corroborated with France, Norway and Canada to develop the procedure for creating what we now know as an atomic bomb. By early 1940, Britain had developed the alloys and the procedure for building the bomb. It was at this point in the war that knowing we were alone against West Germany, West Germany, Nazi Nazi Germany, Germany. West Germany, uh, a little assistance was required um, to actually build a working bomb. And it was believed that despite the power of this weapon, a significant number of these would need to be used to defeat Germany. Well, by this time, The United States had declared war on Germany and Japan, and they had the resources to manufacture the quantity needed. I believe the quantity needed would be 120 units. That seems a little bit excessive. I mean, I know Germany's a big country, but if you dropped a nuke on Berlin, I think that would have been the end of it. Modern day one? Yeah, quite possibly, but... They didn't know exactly how powerful these things no, were going to be. They so they estimated, I read somewhere about 120 was, gonna, was the figure that they were looking at. Bloody hell. And of course the US had the resources to build them. Mm-hmm. They said they would. Britain sent the, their scientists along with all the research over to the US. And the subsequent project was named the Manhattan Project. Yep, that's a good episode to do on its own. The plan was for a bomb to be built 
and tested in the US before the US could start production, ship the bombs to the UK, and then go for, go for Germany. Yes. Despite all their promises and everything, the US only ever managed to produce three units. Right. Other okay. than the test ones, three practical working units. There was an agreement to share any information obtained with the data already obtained between yep. all the countries. Yeah. Unfortunately, all the details and tests had been completed. The US government sent the British scientists home without their research and refused to share any knowledge with them. In short, the US actually took the plans and basics from Great Britain and the other three countries. They went back on their agreement, and it is a consensus of opinion of the majority of historians, including those in the US, that the United States actually stole the research and refused to share the information with those who did all the work. Yeah. Now, they, they had a reason. You know, they did so to prevent any other uh, country from obtaining what was considered to be the ultimate weapon. So you've got to see it from the Americans' point of view. Britain's standing alone. Yeah. We give Great Britain all the information to build a bomb. Britain loses to Germany, who's got all the information. Absolutely. I can so, I can see the logic. I can see it. the logic behind it, but... It's, it's a sour note, It's a sour it's note, a sour isn't note. It? Yeah. yeah. Um... The downside is that policy really worked because Great Britain, having been shit on from actually went on to develop a far more superior and powerful bomb without the US assistance, it wasn't available until 1952. Yeah. But the British one was f far superior to the American one. And the Russians, without any help from any, any of the sides previously mentioned, actually managed to make their own bomb uh, two years earlier than Britain. So the Russians had a bomb in 1949. Hmm. Uh, so the US's intention of being the world's only nuclear power just fell flat. Yeah. It didn't happen. But was that their intention, or was the intention purely, like you said, logical, on the basis that it had Britain lost the war, then... Germany would have had yeah, the secrets. And could have taken out the US. I mean, we know now nuclear war would take out any country that that went against it so yeah so you can see the logic behind yeah. it. i can see the logic it just didn't feel like it at the time i suppose no no because they've cut they've done all the legwork and the u.s have gone so what has the manhattan project got to do with the uss indianapolis yeah i think everyone will be wondering that at this point well having developed and tested the atom bomb the u.s needed to deliver it it wasn't practical to build it and fly it to the location where it could be used because where it was going to be used was against the Japanese and flying from America to Japan was just too big a, too big, mm -hmm. too big a distance. So the decision was taken to deliver the component parts by ship. Put the bomb together at a site that could be within range of Japan, yep. fly it to Japan and drop it. Yeah, makes sense. This was the mission that the Indy was given. Okay. 
The mission was so secret that only the most senior admirals knew that it was happening. No one was given any information about the Indies' cargo, route or destination. And that included the crew of the ship itself. So late on the 16th of July, just hours after the first atomic bomb was tested and approved, parts of the atomic bomb were delivered to the ship. Some were welded to the deck to prevent loss or damage, you know, being knocked overboard or in the yeah. event of sinking the ship, floating free. And, uh, yeah. Uh, uh. So no one in the crew was told what the cargo was. And that included Captain Charles Butler McVeigh, the third. It's obviously American, isn't yeah. it? The th yeah. It's only our royalty that has... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're the, uh, yeah. We're, uh, they have to do it. Although, yeah. what would we do? Like, if, if you... I mean, obviously, your middle name's Grandad's. But if you were called Ken, and I was called Ken, would I not be... Ken, Ken the third, third. Would yeah. I, yeah, but would I be that, or would it just be? Would you, you, you would just be Ken. You'd just be a Ken. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just wanted we wouldn't we wouldn't go with that, would we? No, no. no it's just you, you just have the same name. Problem when you're growing up and letters arrive. You know which one is it? Is it? But yeah, it's not that much of a problem over no. here. No, <laughs> can imagine it's not. So Charles McVeigh the third wasn't told of what he was carrying he was told where he was going yeah obviously but yeah. not what he was taking but he wasn't told what he was carrying because his cargo included half of the world's total supply of uranium 235 which is radioactive yeah <laughs> yeah um there was no waiting around as soon as that cargo was on board the indy left dock heading for Hawaii. Yeah. Um, Captain McVeigh had asked for a destroyer escort because the mission was so important and his ship had no sonar. So, because it was an older ship? It was an older ship, but it had also the damage and, anyway, mm. and so it wasn't fully repaired. His instruction was to maintain radio silence throughout the whole mission so as not to alert the Japanese. He was informed that no escort was available and that it actually was safer for his ship to head directly to Hawaii at maximum speed. Right. So, off he goes. Only 75 hours later, the Indy arrives in Oahu in Hawaii. And that's a speed record for an American warship. At the time? No, current. Really? Yep. Have they not made faster ships by now? Yep, but they've never had to get there that quick. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, it was a record-breaking journey. From Hawaii, she made her way to a place called Tinian Island, which is the Mariana Islands, or in the Mariana Islands. And that's where the cargo was going to be offloaded, and where eventually the Enola Gay would take off to carry the bomb to Hiroshima some days later. Now, it's reported that in that, because of that speed, Japanese submarines in the area who saw the ship couldn't keep up with it, couldn't attack it. It was the speed that saved the Indy. Wow. So they were there. They were in the area. 
Japanese submarines were everywhere. You know, we think we seem to think of, you know, in this country, the war of the Atlantic was the U-boats against American and British convoys. Um, but it's not. You've got American submarines at work in the Pacific. You've got Japanese machines, uh, submarines in the South China Sea, the Pacific. You've got Russian submarines in the Baltic. They're, they're, every country had submarines. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, of course... The Indy, mission, compl- mission accomplished. So, having delivered the cargo, the Indy was directed by the Admiral to join the rest of the fleet at a place called Guam. Yep. And, he had, and they were told to get there as fast as possible. Because the Indy, being a heavy cruiser, was needed to, to help with the, the assault. Just, yeah. This also meant that she would be travelling through the South China Sea, where only a couple of days before, on the 21st of July, a Japanese submarine using a Katan had sunk the USS Underhill. Now, Captain McVeigh wasn't notified of this, and he wasn't told that Japanese machines... Japanese machines... Japanese submarines were operating in the area. So he took his orders literally. In in short, he headed directly to the ship's destination, which is Guam. Now, as far as the rest of the Navy was concerned, the Indy was still being repaired in Mare Island. And the fact that no radio messages had been sent by her did nothing to change that view. Yeah, and no one knew it was there. No. So, 29th of July saw Captain McVeigh and the Indy heading towards another battle... At full speed. At 11 o'clock at night, the Japanese submarine, the I-58, had surfaced to charge her batteries. She was 250 miles north of um, Palau, and she proceeded to head south. Shortly afterwards, so we're talking just after 11 o'clock at night, the navigation officer, Lieutenant Tanaka, spotted a ship approaching from the west going very fast it wasn't zigzagging now normal procedure um, in enemy potential enemy areas where submarines were operating and surface ships the standard evasive tactic was to zigzag yep that didn't put the submarine in a position where you would be side on yeah makes sense Lieutenant Commander Hashimoto identified the target as an American Idaho-class battleship without escorting ships. Didn't matter to him what it was, really, because it was the enemy. Yeah. And he didn't know, Hashimoto didn't know, that the India didn't have sonar or hydrophones. So the Indy had no means of knowing the submarine was even there. So the I-58 submerged. It went down to torpedo depth. Yeah. And they prepared to attack with Type 95 torpedoes. Now, 
The Type 95 was the best torpedo of the Second World War made by any country. Uh, it was far superior to anything that the Americans had. It had a range of 9,000 metres, which is five and a half miles, or just over five and a half miles, a top speed of 49 to 51 knots, which is about 91 to 94 kilometres an hour. That's it's not, quick. That's not slow. Yeah. It's not slow. Bearing in mind that the Indy was probably doing 15. Yeah. These things are going to do 49 to 51. It's a big difference. Okay. So he maneuvered his submarine into a position. Bearing in mind the, the ship wasn't zigzagging, so it was you could see it coming. And at 26 minutes past 11 that night, he fired a spread of six torpedoes two seconds apart. Nine minutes later, he observed two equally spaced hits on the cruiser's starboard side. The other four torpedoes missed, so he got it with two. The ship stopped, started to lean over to the right-hand side, which is the starboard side, and started to go down by the front. Uh, Hashimoto decided he was going to attack again, and brought his submarine to 100 feet in order to reload his torpedo tubes, take a second shot. On board the Indy, Captain McVeigh was instantly aware his ship had been torpedoed. The first struck the starboard side of the ship near the bow. This one actually broke the keel of the Indy and lifted the bow out of the water. The second torpedo hit the hull just ahead of the bridge and severed the communications between the bridge and the engine room. At the same time, it ignited some of the ship's ammunition. That's an almighty bang. Yeah. Um, no communications from the bridge to the engine room, so without any orders to the contrary, the engine room continued to keep the one working engine, as the second one was damaged, so they kept the one working engine running in, a, in an attempt to try and outrun the enemy. Unfortunately, this had the effect of pushing the ship forwards, forcing the sea into the ship. Now, Captain McVeigh, this is a bit controversial, Captain McVeigh gave the order to abandon the ship. But going against standing orders, he requested a distress signal. From the torpedo impact to the ship leaving the surface, it took 12 minutes. That's not a long time. And that's not a long time for people to get out. 12 minutes for the Indy to leave the surface and begin its three and a half mile descent to the bottom. That's a long way down. Like I said, Captain Hashimoto levelled off at 100 feet. He heard at least 10 separate explosions. But when he looked through the periscope for a final look before sending his last torpedoes, the ship had gone. Didn't need any more torpedoes. So the submarine surfaced and departed the scene heading north, leaving the survivors in the water. water wasn't cold 
so the chances of survival were quite good if you made it off the ship. And it's estimated that around 900 men entered the sea that night out of a crew of 11,195. Uh, so not bad. That's, That's not, not bad, bad going. The rest went down with the ship. Now, there was a fair amount of floating debris, which included 12 life rafts, six flotation nets, and a lot of the survivors clung on to these, but there weren't enough for everybody. And it wasn't easy, because not everything that floated assisted the men in the water. The damage sustained in the torpedo attack by the Indy was so severe that it, she leaked a substantial amount of fuel and oil on her way to the bottom. And that stuff floats. Items broke free from her on her three and a half mile trip to the seabed. And these would shoot up to the surface and collide with the men who were already floating there. A oh, large, nice. large number of sailors were f found themselves swimming in oil and fuel, uh, got into their eyes and their mouths and caused all sorts of problems. Yeah, I can imagine that's not a comfortable place to be. Despite all the issues, the sea was calm, and the reports suggest that although they hadn't managed to send a distress signal, help would be along once the ship failed to arrive. Well, you'd have thought so, except for mm. the fact that no one knows they're there. Exactly. The dawn saw the 900 men or so come together in small groups. Those that had been injured were placed on the few life rafts available. The rest remained in the warm water, clinging onto anything that floated, or just floating there without life jackets. As the sun rose on July the 30th, the survivors just bobbed around in the water. The life rafts were scarce, there weren't many of them, and the living searched for the dead floating in the water. They appropriated their life jackets for the survivors who hadn't got any. Yeah. Hoping to keep some semblance of order, the survivors began forming groups, some small, some large. Um, some were over a hundred, but they were in open water. They were in the middle of nowhere. The sun beat down on the survivors, and although they were surrounded by water, it's not drinkable. And exposure to the sun and thirst were the first of their problems, but it wasn't going to be their biggest one. Surely rescue was on their way, on its way, but it wouldn't arrive yet. Trouble is, the sound of the explosions had attracted some unwanted visitors. Add that to the fact that there's a substantial amount of noise created by the thrashing about of survivors and the presence of blood in the water, it wasn't long before some very nasty fish arrived at the scene. Yeah. Oceanic white tips. Now, the animals were drawn by the sound of the initial explosion, the sinking of the ship, the thrashing about of the sailors, the blood in the water. Now, many sharks live in open water. None are considered as aggressive as the oceanic white tip. And these fish were the ones that arrived during the daylight hours. Day gave, time, gave way to night. Now, twilight is the feeding time for sharks. Right. That first night, the sharks focused on f the floating dead. 
but the survivors' struggles in the water only attracted more and more sharks, which could feel their motions through a biological feature that the, the sharks have called the lateral line, which is basically receptors that can pick up changes in pressure and movement from about a hundred from a couple of hundred yards away wow <laughs> in other words they're just floating meals aren't they yeah once the dead had all gone the sharks turned their attention towards the living especially those injured and bleeding 88 sailors were attacked and killed in the largest cluster of survivors 25 died in a smaller cluster, but there were numerous incidents of sharks singling out one person. The sailors in the water tried to distance themselves away from anybody with an open wound, leaving them to fend off the sharks alone, and when someone died, they pushed the body away, hoping that the corpse would uh, give them a reprieve from a shark. A lot of the survivors are paralysed with fear, they were unable to eat or drink from the meagre rations that had come up from the ship. There's no drinking water. There's only a very limited amount of food. And this all added to the survivors' problems. In fact, one group of survivors found a, a can of Spam. Um, and they opened it. The trouble is, the scent of the meat drew a swarm of sharks around them. And <laughs> they got rid of that fairly quickly. Um, to be honest, they said later and a couple of them did survive, uh, they would rather starve than risk a second swarming of sharks. Wow. I mean, starving's one of the worst ways to go as well. The sailors actually believed that the ship had sent a distress message, but only one. It sank too fast for a second. Um, now, if the message had got through, help would be on its way. The sailors only had to hold out for a few more hours. If not, when the ship failed to arrive in Guam, a search party would be sent out to look for them. The sailors were actually unaware no message had actually been sent. The second day, a drift in the ocean began for the men in the water. And by now, more than they had more than the sharks to deal with. They got sunburn, dehydration, hypothermia. Uh, hypernatremia or natremia which is salt poisoning uh, disquamation of the uh, skin which is actually skin loss because it's been immersed in water yeah uh, men started to die of exhaustion some committed suicide a few even killed each other as they suffered from delirium and hallucinations wow That's... second night comes and goes second night of hell gives way to daylight the truth was there was no distress message um, but even if one had been sent it had been dismissed as a hoax uh, conducted by the Japanese why would that be because it was impossible for the Indianapolis to have sunk because as far as the Navy was concerned she was still in the repair yard yeah makes sense doesn't it the truth was nobody knew the, sh the ship had gone so nobody was looking for survivors. The reality was the men in the water were on their own in the middle of thousands of miles of ocean, and the number alive was dwindling fast. Sunburn began to take its toll. Some of the men went blind. Those that drank seawater got salt poisoning. 
Those who didn't drink from the sea became dehydrated. After two days in the water, the men's life jackets became waterlogged and dragged the weakers, the weaker members under the water. More food for the fish. That's mental, isn't it? Several times the men in the water thought they'd been seen because aircraft had actually flown overhead. Truth was, they weren't seen. No, because no one's looking for them. You wouldn't look down. Another day and night goes by, and it's now Thursday, the 2nd of August. Most of the men had given up all hope. But at five past midnight, uh, five past midday, another plane flies over the remaining survivors. This plane was piloted by Lieutenant Wilbur Charles Gwynne, and he's a Navy pilot on a routine flight over the area in a PV-1 Ventura. He was flying over the open ocean when he saw a flicker of light from the sea. So he drops to a lower altitude and he saw what he believed to be an oil slick. And then he saw hundreds of men in the water. Now he didn't know whether they were friends or enemies, but he's not able to re give any assistance. So he radioed his base in, uh, I think you pronounce it, Pelinau. Mm, I don't know how to pronounce I'm not good with... Uh Hawaiian names. And he alerted them to, quote, many men in the water. Um, he flew back over the survivors, waving his wings to indicate that they had been seen. The relief felt by the men in the water was amazing. They'd spent four days in open water. It must have been... That's, that's a long time, isn't it? To be floating in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. And let's be honest, you're not just floating there, you're watching all of your friends die mm. around you. Um, the US Navy sent out a PBY seaplane piloted by a gentleman called Lieutenant Adrian Marks. And he was sent to report on the situation and give as much aid as he could by dropping life rafts and supplies. But as he arrived on the scene, he saw the sharks actually attacking the people in the water. So completely disobeying a standing order not to land on open water, he did just that. <laughs> and he screwed up his aircraft. <laughs> right. The damage sustained would prevent him from taking off. Yeah. But the plane would still float, so he taxied his aircraft towards the men in the water, and he got as many out of the water as possible. Once the fuselage was full, the crew of the aircraft began putting survivors on the wings and tying them down with parachute cord. He'd already sent a radio message. A few hours later, around midnight, the USS Cecil Doyle arrived and began taking on survivors. Disregarding the safety of his own crew and ship, the captain aimed his largest searchlight into the sea and straight up as a beacon for the six other ships that were coming to assist. The Navy now knew that the men had come from the Indianapolis and of the 900 men that entered the water as the Indy went down, 316 were pulled out alive. They'd spent 96 hours and nearly five days adrift in the open ocean. The Indianapolis was the last warship to be sunk in the Second World War. The bomb that she delivered was dropped on Hiroshima four days after the crew was rescued on the 6th of August. 
as in the 6th of August was the day the bomb, bomb was dropped. The ship's sinking in the final days of World War II was the largest loss of life from a single ship in US naval history. And the war ended for the US on the 2nd of September. So it was only a month before. Captain Charles McVeigh III was one of the last to abandon the Indianapolis. But he was one of the living men pulled from the ocean. In November 1945, he was court-martialed for failing to order his men to abandon ship. He had no communication. (laughs) (laughs) The communications were damaged. The court-martial also had him up for putting the ship in danger because he did not utilise a zigzag course in an area containing enemy submarines. He was convicted of that. But he was later restored to active duty and he retired in 1949 as a rear admiral. He remains the only captain of an American warship to be court-martialed after the loss of his ship in combat. And the incident must have plagued him in the years after the war because in 1968 he actually committed suicide. Uh, The case was reviewed into July 2001 and a congressional bill posthumously cleared Charles McVeigh of all charges associated with the sinking of the Indianapolis. So he eventually got let off but he didn't know it because he's died. He committed suicide. Bloody hell. I mean he wouldn't have been alive in 2001 anyway but that's a bit that's a bit harsh isn't it? You know that's just that just to me epitomises every government on the planet that they they can't take the blame themselves. So they just pick the first scapegoat. And that's all he was. He was a scapegoat, wasn't he? Yeah. He did nothing wrong. Now, many of the survivors didn't speak about the incident. And it wasn't until the film Jaws came out in 1977 that people began to be interested in the incident. Because there's a part in the film where one of the characters, Quince, recounts the sinking of the Indianapolis. Ah, I've never actually seen Jaws. Haven't you? No. It's a very good film. But, yeah, there is a part in it where one of the characters relays his experience by claiming to be on the Indianapolis. Hmm. So the kamikaze attack set in motion the chain of destiny. Had it not been for the USS Pensacola and the engineering casualty that prevented her from carrying the bomb to Tinian yeah uh, if the uh, kamikaze attack hadn't damaged the Indianapolis she wouldn't have been in Mare Island so she wouldn't have been able to take, so uh, to take Pensacola's it. place mm. she would still have been there when the war ended and everybody would have survived except for those that were lost in the kamikaze attack Instead, as we've heard, the Indianapolis came out of the repair yard early. She still made the fastest trip to Pearl Harbor ever recorded. And then on to Tinian Island, she played a pivotal role in the execution of perhaps the most momentous decision ever made by a US president. And as horrible as that bomb was, it would have been dwarfed by the carnage to the Japanese and the Americans 
that would have resulted in the invasion of the Japanese home islands. Millions of descendants of these people are alive today because the Indy executed her mission. Uh, the sinking of the Indianapolis was a tragic event that has been the subject of numerous books, films, documentaries, and such. It sparked controversy and debate over the circumstances leading up to the sinking, the subsequent rescue efforts. Uh, many have questioned why the ship wasn't properly protected, why the rescue efforts were delayed. Um, one factor is the secrecy of the mission. Um, she wasn't accompanied by an escort because of the nature of it, of the actual mission itself. And she couldn't detect the submarine because she didn't have sonar. She didn't have the ability mm. to detect the submarine anyway. In recent years, the sinking of the Indy has, well, efforts have been made to honour the memory of the crew and the members who lost their lives in there. 1995, a memorial was erected in Indianapolis to commemorate the ship and the crew. Um, in 2018, the wreckage of the Indianapolis was actually found and photographed. Um, so, realistically, in conclusion, the sinking of the Indy was a tragic event that left a lasting impact on both the United States Navy and the world. The ship and her crew will always be remembered for their bravery and their sacrifice. And hopefully this story will get told for generations. The last surviving officer of the Indianapolis, Don Howson, he died 3rd of January 2000. Yeah. And currently... As of, we are now September. Yeah. There is one living survivor of the Indianapolis, and that is Seaman Harold John Bray, second class. Wow. I mean, I totally understand the secrecy from <laughs> from California to Hawaii. Yep. But once they've delivered their cargo. What's with the secrecy? It doesn't matter. I just can't... I can understand that first point because, obviously, they're carrying, essentially, the weapon that's going to end the war. Had it have been sunk at that point, it could have caused some serious damage, could have exploded in the middle of the ocean. Had they have got into harbour and it had been attacked, you know, things like that. That I mean, can you imagine if it had actually got into the harbour at Oahu and then got attacked? Yeah. I mean, that would have been... Probably the whole Hawaiian islands disappeared, but mm. well, I think that's why they put it in components rather than actually as a single bomb yeah. on the ship, so that it couldn't, it couldn't explode, explode in, like that. In, but yeah, but once it's done its mission or that first mission, there's no need for the secrecy. So just say oh, off you go. You go into Guam and tell everyone the India will be there in. Yeah, days. I suppose, but then somebody somewhere, and the Japanese weren't stupid, um, they would have looked and gone, well, how come it's not where it's supposed to be, which is, uh, how come it's going to Guam from Hawaii, or Tinian Island, uh, when it should be in California? What's it doing? Well, why is it there? Why didn't we know it had gone? But, and then they'd yeah. start to look into it. So, But would they have found out that it had created an atomic bomb because you've got to remember at this point 
the only people that know about the atomic bomb are the Americans. Correct, even the British yeah. don't know about it because they booted us out. Yeah. So even we didn't know they perfected it. So the Japanese would have had no idea that the Americans had this weapon. No idea. They, I mean, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They could have thought anything. They could have thought the president was at Tunian Island. Do you know, it could have been literally anything. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't get the secrecy for that mission. And, and I think had they have alerted the rest of the Navy that you will be joined very shortly by a destroyer that is probably going to benefit you. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, don't what, panic. What, what gets in- me is that it could have been so different. They were sailing to Hawaii. Mm. And spotted. And, and spotted. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh look, we'll sink that one. Yeah. And, and, then, it had- and then it's gone. Yeah. And, what- and they, the, the Americans only produced... Besides the test ones that they tested, they only produced three atomic bombs. Mm. And they didn't need to use the third. And they didn't need to use the third. Although it was actually in the pipeline to be dropped. Yeah, it was. It was going for Tokyo, wasn't it? It was going... uh, I'd have to look it up. But it was going... There was a contingency for the third one to be used. But Hiroshima wasn't the first target anyway, if I I remember rightly. I'll have to look into it. But they weren't to target Hiroshima they were to target somewhere else and as it as the the Enola Gay flew over the the first target wasn't wasn't acceptable so they went to the second they went to the backup yeah yeah well, yeah so but um that's that's one for you the Enola Gay mm, well you got that I mean the Manhattan Project would be I think quite interesting to delve into especially like we said on the basis that you know d- does it does it count as stolen well, I don't suppose it was stolen because we gave it to them. Yeah. No. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. It's just they kept it and the thing wouldn't, is, wouldn't give it back. If I'm if I'm right at the time, um, the US was the only place in the world that had uranium mines. Anyway, we couldn't really access it anywhere else. So there was even with the fact that we planned the bomb, we knew how to do it. We wouldn't have been able to do it because we didn't have the the. We needed the, the help. Of the, we yeah. needed the help of the states. So, not for the first time, do we? Do we <laughs> no, not, certainly not for the first time. Yeah, they they have bought us out of a few holes, but um, but yeah, no. I and mean, they've got us into some. Yes, they definitely have. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Tony Blair. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've um, you know, it's an interesting story, and I I find it, I find it fascinating that, you know, that the ship goes down, and how long those men were in the water i mean that's just, 96 hours yeah i mean i i don't even like being in a bath for more than like 20 minutes so do you know what i mean it's just With, uh, yeah and you can't touch the bottom it's three and a half miles down yes yeah, so you're treading water <laughs> yeah i mean just... i'm assuming there was probably things in the water to hold on to that would mm, but yeah but you know Things are going to be released from the ship three and a half miles down that are going to float and whack you on on the surface. Oh yeah, they're going to come up with a bit of speed, aren't they? Yeah. So you know, like, that's it. And you're swimming in oil with sharks. With sharks, they've got oil. You can't see the sharks. Yeah. I mean, it's so quite... suddenly you know you're suddenly swimming with five people. One sticks his arms up in the air, and then there's four. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got to swim away from there because the blood's there, and then yeah it's like oh yeah, yeah no not a not a pleasant thing not a nice experience and 
I mean, by my calculation, over 600 people died. Yeah. In, having got off the ship and thought, great, we're off the ship, now we just wait for rescue, 600 of them didn't make it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you get off... And the other thing, I mean, the one of the worst things in naval warfare that kills more people than probably the the explosions, the bombs, the guns... The water. Is the water. <laughs> yeah. The water kills more people than anything because of the, the temperature. And they probably got out and thought, actually, do you know what? We could probably survive in this water for 24 hours. It's not that bad. Mm. And then you've got the nasty fish. Yeah. So, but yeah, very, very interesting. Amazing to be back recording. Um, it's nice to be back and, and doing it again. Um, obviously, like I said, having things get in the way. But we're back now. We've got a few episodes in the pipeline. Um, we'll be looking forward to your Bonnie and Clyde. I know that's. Uh, <laughs> I am looking forward to that because that's gonna go on forever. That is. That's. Uh, there's a lot in that one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it though because, like I said, you know, there'll be things that you cover that I haven't, and possibly vice versa. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to yeah, see. Yeah, I haven't heard your one. No, it's on there now. So, yeah. for those of you who are interested, once we've recorded that one, I'll put a poll on on the Facebook group and. We'll do a we'll do a tally. See who's well, it's, better. Well, it's your it's your podcast, so it's bound to be you, isn't it? You would say that, but then when you read the messages, I keep getting messages. When's Dad coming back? When's your Dad coming back? So I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, no, to be fair, there's been been a lot of messages from from you guys and a lot of comments and things like that. And um, yeah, people have been been really supportive considering it has been two months. So yeah, well, hopefully we get a few done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the episode, Dad. And uh, we'll see you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.